0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 316th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is brought to you by 20th Century Fox, presenting Ford vs. Ferrari, directed by James Mangold and starring Christian Bale and Matt Damon. Ford vs. Ferrari is now nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor, Christian Bale, and five Critics' Choice nominations, including Best Picture of the Year. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a legendary and beloved actor who is most celebrated for his work on TV, garnering 34 Emmy nominations over the course of his career, six of which resulted in wins. He is, of course, best known as the star of TV's immensely popular comedy series M.A.S.H., on which he played Dr. Hawkeye Pierce for 11 seasons spanning 1972 through 1983, and for which he received 25 of those Emmy nominations, winning five, three for acting, one for directing, and one for writing, making him the first person to ever win Emmys in all three of those areas, and for which he also became the first person to ever receive Emmy nominations in one year for acting, directing, and writing, something he did four times while only five other people, Louis C.K., Lena Dunham, Aziz Ansari, Donald Glover, and Bill Hader, have ever done once. His other Emmy nominations have recognized work in, among other shows, ER, The West Wing, for which he won, and 30 Rock. Meanwhile, on the big screen, he has starred in three Woody Allen films, 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors, 1993's Manhattan Murder Mystery, and 1996's Everyone Says I Love You. He garnered a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for his work in 2004's The Aviator under the direction of Martin Scorsese. And most recently, he stole every scene in which he appeared opposite Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson in Noah Baumbach's excellent 2019 drama, Marriage Story. A 1994 inductee into the Television Hall of Fame and a 2019 recipient of the SAG Life Achievement Award, the great Alan Alda. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Alda Communication Training, or ACT, in New York... The 83-year-old and I discussed what it was like growing up as the son of Robert Alda, an actor best known for originating the role of Sky Masterson in Broadway's Guys and Dolls, how he had already begun to make his own name on Broadway when the opportunity to star in M.A.S.H. came along, and how that changed his life over the next decade plus, why, post-M.A.S.H., he primarily focused on film parts, with occasional exceptions like his guest-starring turn on The West Wing, having previously turned down its leading role, why he so enjoyed playing a decent, if also slightly incompetent, divorce lawyer in Marriage Story, and what his life is like today, 10 years after founding the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science as part of the School of Journalism at Stony Brook University, four years after receiving a Parkinson's disease diagnosis, and roughly a year and a half after starting a wonderful interview podcast of his own, Clear and Vivid, which I can't recommend enough. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Alda, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank uh, you. Always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I know it's sort of in the, in the genes in your case, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: right. I was born in Manhattan on 33rd Street and—actually, thir- 32nd and 3rd Avenue. I missed Toity Tree and Toyed by a block. Yeah. <laughs> Toyty, and And my father was in Burlesque. My mother was a homemaker although she had won a beauty contest and toured. In those days, they had a beauty contest that toured the country after they selected the winners. Not bad. The women came out on stage, I guess, in bathing suits and posed. I don't know what they did.
0: (laughs) I mean, they didn't have a talent show or anything. But he was in burlesque when I was born. And you, at a very early age, started to join him on stage, right? Well, they
1: carried me out when I was six months old <laughs> on stage in a schoolroom sketch and had me in a high chair. But I actually did sketches with my father at the uh, Hollywood Canteen, which was a place where soldiers and sailors came during the Second World War on their way to the Pacific. Yeah. And, and uh, Hollywood actors and actresses would entertain They could do anything they could. They'd sing, they'd do comedy, they'd dance with the soldiers. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and so my father and I did Who's On
0: First? <laughs> I was I was Lucas Costello. That's great. We try to contextualize the, the lives of all of our guests, as you do on your terrific podcast, and I think it's worth noting, not harping on, but it wasn't, you know, it's sort of like with Julie Andrews, who I know is, is coming on your podcast. People assume she's such a sunny happy person. When you find out that her childhood was not that pleasant at times, it's kind of amazing that she came out that way. You're not going to make me break down and cry. I hope not. I hope not. But I mean, your mother, I've done my homework. I mean, she had her issues with mental illness. Yeah. My mother,
1: unfortunately, was schizophrenic and paranoid. Mm -hmm. That was difficult to grow up with. But there was maybe a positive side to that because I had to observe her really carefully. I remember seeing her face and trying to figure it out when I was about four, mm-hmm. three or four. And I had to keep reading not only her face, but what she said. I had to try to interpret it and figure out if it was the truth or just her truth,
0: her reality. And then you had your own issue at seven, right, with polio. That's right. people yeah. may not appreciate how unpleasant that must have been.
1: That was hard because the treatment was very painful. The treatment at the time was introduced by a nurse in Australia called Sister Elizabeth Kenny and it it involved steaming hot squares of woolen blankets on every muscle of your body every hour. So just when they'd cool off they'd (laughs)
0: they'd scorch you again (laughs) with another. But I guess a, a byproduct of that which you know, looking on the bright side, it gave you a lot of time to read and listen, right? That's you're, you're now a master communicator. You have a communication program here at the offices where we're recording. And I, I get the sense that the first actors who you were really exposed to were people on the radio. The first actors I were, was exposed to were
1: people well, in burlesque. Sure. I was in an intimate position with actors all my life. I'd either be standing in the wings watching them. Or it'd be off to the side while my father was doing radio shows with them, or watching on the set when he made movies. So I think I learned most of what I knew in the beginning about acting from watching from the side, mm-hmm. which is a good place to watch. It's better than watching from the front in the audience, because you see you see them creating the illusion when you're on the side.
0: It's like watching a magician from the side. You see where he hides the pigeon, right? <laughs> and did it make you think? from that early age of doing that, that this is what I want to do? Or sometimes people run in the opposite direction of what their parents do. Well, I I knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was
1: eight years old. And then later, when I was much older, when I was nine, I wanted to be an actor. (laughs) Once I got out on stage at the Hollywood Canteen and started getting laughs, I couldn't resist that. That's what I knew I wanted to do. But I,
0: I still wanted to write all my life. And did the writing start when you were basically bedridden with polio?
1: No, I can only remember standing on the bed looking out the window at kids uh, playing, and I couldn't join them. It was it was a very scary time. You yeah. know, everybody was afraid you could catch it uh, just by talking to somebody with polio. So n- only one friend was allowed to visit me. Everybody else
0: was kept back by parents. How do you think that shaped the... Person I have no became?
1: idea. It's an interesting question, but I have no idea because that's what I experienced. So right. I don't know. I can't track any effect it had. Right. Uh, I, I really don't know.
0: Here's another random one. But why did Alfonso DeBruzzo, is that how you say it, Junior? Alfonso DeBruzzo. D'Abruzzo De Junior. How does he become Alan Alda? Well, my, I was born Alfonso DeBruzzo.
1: Right. It's on my birth certificate. But my father, because he was in show business at that time especially, felt that a, an ethnic name wouldn't go very far, especially one that for most Americans is hard to pronounce, Dabruzzo. Mm-hmm. So he took the fir- he he was also Alphonse or Alfonso D'Abruzzo. So he took the first two letters of Alphonse and the first two of Dabruzzo and yeah. got A L D A. And I thought by the time I was ready to Declare myself in a show business career. I I was still a teenager. And I thought that I would use my Italian name because I was proud of it. And times were changing. There were already actors who were using their Italian names like Franciosa. You know, that would have been unheard of when mm-hmm. my father was a kid. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that all my life I had been Alda
0: and that was the family name. Yeah. So I stuck with that. And you go off to Fordham and is that where it started to get more serious in terms of actually studying and and getting gigs in and out of school? Is that it seems like that's where it became a real real thing? Well, I did actually
1: start working professionally while I was in college in my break between the first and second semester. I understudied the lead in a Broadway play. And fortunately, it didn't interrupt my education at all. The play closed in a week. <laughs> so so I, I got an education. Yeah. And I also worked for $25 a week as an apprentice at a theater in Pennsylvania when I was 16. So I was building scenery, helping build scenery, and also once in a while playing a leading part because they had the leading actor for $25. They weren't going to give up that shit.
0: Right, right. I was very interested to learn that you really did quite a bit of improv early on. People know about Second City now. So many talented people have come out of that, but also Compass Players, which I'm less familiar. Compass was a forerunner of
1: Second City, and I was in a company of Compass, but not the original one. I was the one that came about after Second City was started. And I did take over for a couple of weeks for another actor at Second City. So I did perform on the Second City stage, but I wasn't a regular member of the Second City Company. The thing that I got out of improvising was about a six-month stretch where we had workshops on the stage in the afternoon, on the stage of the Second City Company, when it was not being used for anything else. And we did improvising workshops twice a week very serious improvising it wasn't comedy improvising and it really was the basis of the best I am able to do as an actor I think it, can it's you a, share- the most, most important kind of training I think
0: well so people today associate I think a lot of people associate improv with comedy so when it's not in the context of comedy just can you define share what improv actually means? It's not to say, by the way, that it's not funny to watch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because
1: it's, it's hard not to be amused by real spontaneity. Yeah. And it, the people don't have to be saying something funny for you to find it funny to watch. Right. But to describe what it is, it's hard. It's a series of games invented by a woman called Viola Spolin, who was the mother of the guy who started Second City and the exercises really are intended and very effective at getting you to relate to the other person you're playing with you get to read their mind almost you're, you, you become a true collaborator with them so that if one of you starts is moved is inspired to go in a certain direction the other one goes with that person and that's sort of the basis of improv and it's the basis of communicating, I found out later. Yes. And that's why when we teach scientists to communicate better, we teach them, to start with, we teach them improvisation. So interesting. But this kind of improvisation, not comedy. Improvisation.
0: Right, right. Uh, although that could be <laughs> that could be applied probably <laughs> That, could, that too. could be helpful
1: too, <laughs> but we're not trying
0: to make comedians no. out of scientists. <laughs> so Broadway debut in 1959, Only in America. Then there's another 1961, Pearly Victorious, And then your first male lead in 64, The Owl and the Pussycat, and then first Tony nomination for The Apple Tree in 1967. And reading about that, obviously, uh, the sad part, I guess, about theater is that back in those days, maybe less so today, there's no real visual record of it. I know, again, to come back to Julie Andrews, she was saying that was a sad thing for her that she couldn't show her grandkids her as Eliza Doolittle when she had done My Fair Lady and then didn't get to do it on film. But I guess in your case, the thing that you've said, one of the key moments in your life happened during the Boston tryouts for The Apple Tree. And I just wonder if you can, if you remember. I think I know
1: what you're talking about. I must have been at that time, 28 or 29, I'm not sure. And in the third act of The Apple Tree, I played three characters in the show and the third character I played is dragged out on stage on a rolling cart and I had a sheet over my head. And at a certain moment when I'm in front of the audience, the chorus pulls the sheet off and I'm revealed as this stupid looking rock and roll singer with a fright wig and tights. (laughs) And as I'm waiting to be dragged on stage one night, I'm thinking, I'm at the age now, I'm standing under this sheet thinking this, ready, ready to be exposed as an idiot, and I'm thinking, I expected at this age to be playing Oedipus Rex, and now they're going to take the sheet off, and I'm going to get a laugh from how stupid I look. And I started, tears started coming out of my eyes, and they pulled me on stage, and I pulled myself together. The sheet came off, and I played the guy, but I, I thought about that a lot afterward. And I thought, it's like an improvisation. Things come your way. Life doesn't go the way you planned for it to go. It never will. So make the most of what's in front of you. And that's what I did. And a few years later, I wound up getting a script in the mail, uh, which was the pilot episode of MASH.
0: That's amazing. And uh, at that point, you were probably about 35, if it was. Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Which is later than many people first become well, I, I was already
1: playing leads on Broadway and in movies, but the movies were
0: all duds. <laughs> well, so, because after Apple Tree closed is when you went out to California, and was it Paper Lion first? No, pa-
1: Paper Lion was shot in the East. In the East. Yeah, and that was a good movie. Yeah. It just didn't make a huge amount of money. But I was in a movie while I was doing The Apple Tree, a really terrible movie called The Extraordinary Seaman. <laughs> I I hasten to spell it. Yeah. S e a m a. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. I used to say the extraordinary seaman. It only takes one. <laughs> so uh, that movie was so bad that they only played it in flights over Pittsburgh, <laughs> and three people parachuted
0: to get away. But. Uh- once it got going with Paper Line, you were nominated for the Golden Globe for New Star of the Year. You were on the on the rise, and then can you share what you were doing when you first received that pilot script for Mash? I was in prison. <laughs> I, was, I was
1: in the Utah State Prison, where we were making a movie. I was there for three weeks. Uh, we would go home at night to the hotel. <laughs> But stupidly, and when we started working there, I said, I'd like to stay the night to see what it's like to be in a prison so it'll help my performance. And they said, "Um, no. (laughs) And that was really a smart thing for them to say because by the time we got to the last day of the movie, two guys made me hostage. Seriously? Yeah. And I sensed it might be a joke because... For three weeks, the director had been making what he thought were pleasantries with the inmates, saying to them, if you guys want to get out of here, you ought to make all the (laughs) hostage, because nobody would stop you if you have an actor. (laughs) So I'm about to walk, at the last shot of the movie, the two guys say, is that it? It's all over now? I say, yeah. And then they hold a razor up to my throat and say, well, we're getting out of here and we're taking you with us. And it was serious? Well, it was hard to tell. The, ra- the razor was real. <laughs> oh, and man. then a guard came over, and he was trembling. And he had a gun on his belt. And I thought, if somebody reaches for that gun, between the razor and the gun, yeah. somebody's going to get hurt. <laughs> so I just got very still and yeah. quiet. I knew these guys, and they were both nuts. <laughs> and uh, and then they they showed they had retracted the razor, yes. the blade. Yes. And... Uh, chuckled and walked off I never found out that they got punished for it so you don't know if it was it was coordinated or not well I, it must have been I went over to the director and sort of stared at him yeah and he said I don't think the guard was in on it
0: <laughs> well that's improv for you right yeah there. right there yeah <laughs> so when you received that script for MASH while in the middle of doing that first of all was it it was specifically to play Hawkeye as far as I know yeah yeah and what were your impressions of it?
1: It was the best pilot script I'd read, and I'd read a few. And But I, I called my wife and said, it's too bad, this is a really good script, but I obviously can't take the job because we live in the East, our children are entering high school, they're entering puberty, and we can't pull them out. And this thing might run a year, I said. <laughs> and it ran 11 years Yeah, year. right. And the next day she said, look, if it's so good, maybe we can fix that with travel. So for a few months, every year for, I don't know, six or seven years until the kids were in
0: college, I flew back every time I had two days off. That's amazing. And uh, before you signed on, though, I I know there was sort of this last-minute meeting that I've heard about involving you, Larry Gelbart, and Gene Reynolds, who were producing, I guess, at this point, just the pilot, right?
1: Well, just a pilot, but Larry was signed on to write, to be the head writer. Okay. So I was talking to the two really important people in the company, and I said, I got in late at night from the Utah State Prison, <laughs> and the next morning rehearsals were supposed to start. But I, before I agreed to, to go into rehearsals, I wanted to make sure that they agreed that we weren't going to do shenanigans at the front. hmm I mean, there are plenty of shenanigans in the show, but what I mean is they weren't going to ignore the fact that a war was going on and people were getting hurt. That's an important consideration because at the time there were no service comedies that weren't just straight service comedies like McHale's Navy. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't the Second World War going on and they were all having fun.
0: You know, I, I guess the... The question is, MASH had been a movie very successfully in 1970. Here you guys come along probably about a year and a half, two years later. And one of the things that people have always said, and I know from listening to your podcast that you take some issue with this, people have always projected that, all right, you're playing a guy in a mobile army surgical hospital in the Korean War, but it's airing while the Vietnam War is going on. So people assume it was sort of just actually meant to be a veiled way of talking about Vietnam. Yeah,
1: I, I think that that was true for Larry Gelbart, who was the head writer. It wasn't the way I looked at it. I thought we were doing a play about the Korean War. <laughs> and I started to realize Larry really is, is talking about Vietnam here because on the first shot at the opening of the pilot was a title card that read Korea... A hundred years ago or something like that. Yeah. And Korea was only 25 years ago. But I think it was an ironic way of saying Korea was a long time ago, but it's happening now too or something like that. Yeah. But I, the, when I wrote for it and all my thinking about it was trying to show what happened in the Korean War. And Gary Berghoff, who played Radar, said a good thing when we were all getting together on my podcast yes. on that show where we had a reunion which was really funny. We, we were all in different places of the country yes. and got together electronically on the podcast. And, and when, when this subject came up in our conversation, Gary said, I always thought that it was about the Korean War, which stood in not just for Vietnam, but for all war. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way I thought
0: of it too. Sure. How early did it become clear to you that the show was something special? And why do you think it was? You've spoken again on your podcast with that episode about the camaraderie of the cast members, even when quite a few changed over the course of the show's run. But what was at the root of why this? So I guess to, to summarize, when was it first clear it was special and why?
1: It wasn't clear right away that it was working. We knew it was special because we were doing things that weren't done on other programs. And the network wasn't happy about it. They didn't want to see any blood in the operating rooms. Kind of hard to have an operating room without blood, <laughs> unless you're operating on people who are already dead. Right. But when the guy died on the operating table, then the head of the network said, "What is this? A situation tragedy?" So I mean, they really didn't like it. That was the
0: sometimes you hear the bullet yeah, right. episode. Yeah, uh, season. One, I think.
1: Who knows? It wasn't. I know it was in the in the first season.
0: But your character cries in that episode. Your people always remember that because it was so jarring that episode. And yet, you're not as big a fan of it, I, I gather.
1: I'm not a fan of how I cried. I think <laughs> I think I forced it a little bit. Well, it was in a, a later show when I was, I'm not I'm not one of those people who cry easily. I used to cry very. I was seeing kids walk with the flag in a procession. Yeah. In a high school band. That used to just make me ball. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm tougher. <laughs> but the show was at the bottom of the ratings for the first season. Seriously? Yeah, I used to joke that we we're in the top 78. <laughs> and and finally, when uh, when rerun time came, yeah. they stopped looking at the shows they had been watching and tried out our show, yeah. and then they realized they liked it. And by the beginning of the next season, we were getting a big audience. Isn't it now, amazing? Now, you asked why. Yeah. I have no idea. I think, too, it was, was well-directed, well-acted, well-written. But that's probably true of a lot of programs. There was something else that doesn't get much attention, and that may have been a factor, which was that we were trying to honestly tell stories about the lives of people who had really lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we interviewed a couple of hundred of physicians and nurses who had been through that experience and we got stories about what the conditions were like what their fears were what their hopes were and we tried to tell those stories and often we told them we told them we, we had and that was another element we had the chance to tell we took the opportunity we we decided we had the chance to tell stories in many different ways farce buffo comedy mm-hmm. satire heavy drama and sometimes we'd mix them all up in the same thing but Surrealism. We all. We we every once in a while we do a show unlike any that we had ever done, and that kept us interested, yeah. and maybe it kept the audience interested. And the other thing is we had that thing you talked about—that ability to get together and be a group, be an ensemble, really know one another very well, very much like what happens in an improv class mm-hmm. where you learn to make contact with the other people. That contact really helps you when you're playing a scene. So instead of going back to a dressing room... We'd sit in a circle and make fun of one another. Yeah. And
0: yeah. then that kept us laughing and together. And that same dynamic was clear all these years later on your podcast when you That's got, right. I so mean, was,
1: we're doing the same yeah. thing as if
0: we'd never stopped. Oh, That's great. Now, the other thing the show did was I think it made you a very... A much more famous person than you were before. And I wonder how you handled that. I know that you were still commuting back to the East Coast, but I mean, that can be a a lot for someone to adjust to. And I wonder how you managed to do that.
1: It was very hard for me to be that famous. And and I was, the show was extremely popular. All of us were recognized in an instant on the street or in airports. People are disoriented when they come upon some, all of us, by the way, including me. I get disoriented meeting somebody who has meaning to me, but whom I've never met, only seen in a public way. In that case, the people would grab at me and it scared me. You know, I remember one guy grabbing me by the coat and saying to his friend, hey, Fred, look at this. Look what I got. What you got. Yeah, yeah. What's that? It dehumanizes you. Yeah, and I learned to live with it. And and people are very nice now. I mean, now when they're glad to see I'm not dead.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, now, how did you get involved uh, at a certain point, both writing and directing on top of acting on the show? You ended up having a part in writing 19 episodes, directing 32. You won... Emmys for all three types of work, which was a first. Was that something you'd always yearn to do? When did yeah, you- I had
1: always, absolutely. at the time I was 11, I was trying to, I was directing little movies on 16mm mm-hmm. and continued to directed on the stage a little bit. I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the idea of making something happen in a movie frame. That interested me a lot. And I, I had continued to try to learn how to write from the time I was a little boy. Right. So this was a wonderful opportunity. I got much, much better at all these jobs, and the movies that I directed, yeah. I wrote and directed and acted in, which is gives you three ways yeah. to be
0: killed. By, <laughs> is by, it tough, critic, when you're <laughs> when you're directing yourself, but also your fellow actors? Does it change the It changes the, that very
1: much so yeah. because, you know, actors, there's a, an unwritten rule. Actors do not mention the other actor's performance. <laughs> Maybe you'll say that was great yeah. or something like that or you give them a thumbs up. But you don't go too far because you don't want to look like you're judging the right. other person. They don't want to think every time I act this person's, th- you know, judging me, looking yeah. at me with critically. Right. But when you're a director and you're acting in the scene with the other person, you have to give them a bit of direction once in a while. Mm-hmm. And I'd get these looks like, who the hell are you?
0: to tell?" <laughs> well, I'm the director. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Your father and brother appeared on MASH yeah, with you. Yeah, that was
1: very nice. My, my, uh, one show had been written for my father. Mm-hmm. Season and, three and I,
0: episode, yeah. uh, The Consultant.
1: Yeah, and then later I wrote a show for him and,
0: and my brother. Season 8, lend a hand. That's got to be just as tricky in a way as directing, maybe even more so than directing other actors, right? The,
1: no, I, I think my father was used to that with me because <laughs> when I was about 9, yeah, I would help him learn his lines for the movie scene he was going to shoot the next day. That's great. So I'd hold the script and I'd say the other guy's line and then he'd say his line. <laughs> And then I'd pause, and and I'm not saying the next line, and he says, what? What is it? What's the matter? I said, no, no, it's just that maybe you could
0: say that better. (laughs) Nine years old. I love it. Oh, my God. So why, after the 11th season of MASH, did it end?
1: It ended partly because I think I was the strongest voice who felt that we had... Reached the peak, and we were in danger of going downhill from there. And we'd had eleven really good years, and we could have gone on for years more. Yeah, but I personally didn't want to keep doing a show I wasn't proud of, and I, 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 I just saw signs that I thought it was, and we might have reached the top of the hill.
0: Yeah, well, we should we should note that you did reach the top of the hill in terms of ratings. The finale, series finale, which I believe you directed. This And is, wrote, wrote co-wrote. co-wrote. Co-wrote, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. This is a two and a half hour, aired on February 28th, 1983, became the most watched episodic show in TV history, watched by 105.9 million people. I believe it remains the most watched episodic TV. Fe- I think so. Yeah. yeah. There's some
1: um, Super, Bowl super Bowl some Bowls. Super pad- yeah. Bowls, but But th- are they really, are that real or are they acting in this? <laughs> I mean, they don't really hurt yeah. each other like that. No, I think they like, should be yeah, crossed off. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was amazing to hear stories over the years about people who saw it not just sitting in a living room with a few other people, mm-hmm. but I heard a story of hundreds of people watching it in a town hall. Wow. And just a couple of months ago, I was in Canada and I talked to somebody who watched it in a basketball stadium in Toronto with about 23,000 oh people. Oh, my God. Is that amazing? That
0: is. That is. So I, don't, I, don't, I wonder if it's really known how many people watched. Is there? Yeah, right. It could have been under, undercounted. But for you, when you have that level of success or how, whatever the word is, was there any concern, how do I follow this? I know you were excited to, or you felt that it was time to move on, but what do you move on to after? How do you follow that? I don't, I don't think I worried
1: about that, partly because while we were doing Match, I made a few movies mm-hmm. where I played different kinds of people, and I don't, I, I don't have a plan for my career. I don't think of it as a career. I just think of it as trying to take care of what comes next. Yeah. So I, I, it's not something I would worry about. Yeah.
0: Well, can I prompt you to just share a, a thought or two about a few of those other roles that began as you say, during the run of MASH, and then, then we'll go beyond that, but just some of the ones that people very fondly remember. I mean, we could start maybe with California Suite. Uh, this is 1978, adapted from Neil Simon's play, uh, you and Jane Fonda fighting over custody of your daughter. Right, it
1: was fun to play with Jane Fonda, and, and it's fun to do Neil Simon. But it's one of those weird things where I was in a movie with a whole bunch of other actors who I never saw except for Jane (laughs) because the movie was broken up into separate
0: pieces. How about same time next year, that same year in 1978, you got a Golden Globe nomination for playing this man who connects once a year with the same also married woman. But married to a different person. Yes. Yeah.
1: What's interesting about that is that's the story of people who meet on the sly once a year for 25 years, mm-hmm. and their spouses never know. I can't tell you how many women have come up to me in airports and said to me, that's my life story. <laughs> why, why would you tell a stranger that?
0: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> and well, unless you're going to follow it with, and here's my room key. Yeah, yeah.
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> or or let's start the your, this is your your one starts yeah, tonight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about Joe Tynan, a, a liberal senator, starts out as an idealist, becomes corrupted in Jerry Schatzberg's "The Seduction of Joe Tynan," which you that wrote was the, the first picture to.
1: I first movie I wrote. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't even want to direct it because I wanted to concentrate on the writing, and uh, Jerry Schatzberg directed it. And that was uh, a chance, that was one of the first pictures that uh, Meryl Streep did. Yes, yes. And she was wonderful. Yeah. It was fun to work with her.
0: Well, the first thing to come out, I think, after the end of M.A.S.H. was in 84, the four seasons, another Golden Globe nomination for you. And this was another thing that you were uh, a multi-hyphenate, I believe, right? Yeah, I wrote and directed and acted in it. And we
1: had a wonderful cast. And we did the same thing that we did on MASH. We had three weeks to rehearse the movie. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, as the director, I said to the rest of the cast, we'll read the script and we'll discuss it and we'll get up and act out a few scenes. But the most important thing we can do in these next three weeks is to become close friends. And we did. We spent a lot of time together all our meals together traded stories about our childhoods and really got to know one another because the movie is about three couples who have been close friends for decades. Mm-hmm. And that shows on screen when you can, when people really do it. Yeah. Give themselves over. And I've worked with people who just wouldn't give themselves over to it. And it showed. Yeah. They'd look like they're acting. Yeah.
0: Well, in 1989, I, already 30 years ago, you began your... I think three film collaboration with Woody Allen, and this one, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Your character is so memorable in part because I don't think we were that accustomed to seeing you play kind of a, a sleazebag. Which this guy, you know, what's was. so funny about that? I know you're right. That's true. People kept saying to me,
1: "Well, you've never done that before." I, <laughs> almost every part I play is a little sleazy a little in one sleazy. way or another. <laughs> Even Hawkeye was a, a little I, bit. had a few things to explain. Right, but i played a lot of villainous people since then. What do you think that's And every time I do, somebody says, well, you've never done that before. <laughs> I don't know. I, they don't get out much. No, I guess not. I but guess not. The, the thing is, I think I, there was a writer who used to use this phrase in the 60s. I've slathered America with the slime of my amiability," <laughs> And I think that's sort of oozed its way into the consciousness of Maybe. a lot of people, and they just are uh, convinced I'm almost nicer than Tom Hanks.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, when he comes on your podcast soon, and that's going to the, the, the world <laughs> might explode, I don't right. know. <laughs> <laughs> but Woody, you guys did Crimes and Misdemeanors in 89, man, had in Murder Mystery in 93, and Everyone Says I Love You in 96. And, you know... Setting aside anything else about the guy, what, what makes him such a great writer-director? I, I, I really don't know,
1: except he has a, a wonderful imagination and lends himself to it. I was very impressed when I read. I, don't, I never asked him, but he doesn't like to talk, so I haven't <laughs> ever talked with him much. But I read that he wrote Crimes and Misdemeanors in about 10 days on a trip to Scandinavia, on, a lot of it on hotel stationery. And that that impressed me because I thought he had an idea and he just let it flow. And I think he came up with one of the best movies that we have yeah. in America.
0: And your part originally, if I have it correct, started out quite small and then grew a lot when he saw you improvising or doing what you what was it uh, that caused you that? know I don't know if that's true it might it might be true I can't remember yeah. <laughs>
1: but he did like improvising and I as you know I love improvising yeah. so a lot of the stuff I say in those scenes are are improvised and once in a while he'd say that's good but every once in a while uh, say this line that I have in the
0: script cuz I use it later <laughs> so he had he had he needed certain things certain but, things yeah i was just with a bunch of family for Thanksgiving, including some younger relatives who are, I guess, now in high school. And I mentioned I'm going to be sitting down and doing a podcast with Alan Alda this week. And one of them immediately perked right up and he said, Arnold Vinnick. And (laughs) it's amazing that the West Wing on which you played this guy, a, a Republican senator, presidential candidate, seasons six and seven of that show, uh, I mean, it's been 20 years or something since that, and and it does still, anyone who saw it at the time that I know sort of very lovingly remembers it. And then the fact that it's still connecting post-9-11, a lot of things have happened since then that have m- supposedly made us more jaded, cynical people, and yet there maybe that's why young people are still even responding to the West Wing. But I just wonder for you, how did I'd heard that you were originally approached to play Jed Bartlett, the, the Martin Sheehan Yeah, guy.
1: originally I was. And uh, I, I just didn't think it was right for me. And he did a wonderful job. It's great for everybody that he played. It's good for him. It's good for the series. Mm-hmm. And then he and I got to play scenes together, a memorable scene, eating ice cream in the basement of the yes. White House. A lot of people remember that yes. scene. And I, I felt I had I got an education in politics Um acting those scenes because they were the, the the writers were largely people who had been very active in politics senatorial aides and campaign managers or something like that mm-hmm. and they really knew the way things worked and from from the inside so that was a
0: very uh, very nice education i thought what's sorkin dialogue like to to learn and to deliver
1: I never did any because he was oh, not he was writing the show by, by, by the point. time I got there. As a matter of right. fact, one of the happiest times I had acting was doing the live debate, the presidential debate, yes. where Jimmy Smith and I were alone on stage for an hour. Right. And it was almost an improvisation because they kept changing the script, and there was no way to remember yeah. it at the last minute. Yeah. So we had a we had it on prompters. Yeah. And that the funny thing about the and that by the way that was not written by and that was written by Lawrence O'Donnell yes uh, yeah. A very experienced man yes. in politics and, and what I loved about it was in spite of the fact that he clearly had uh, leans more to the left yeah. than the, the character of Arnie Vinnick did he, he did everything he could to give him as strong an argument for his positions as he could and I really liked that. I really liked that it wasn't a straw man that, Vin, that the character Vinick Vinnick represented, but right. somebody who had a point of view that you could make an argument for, and you might not agree with it, but you'd have to admit that there's some sense to it, which is not the way we talk to one another now about no. politics.
0: We assume right away we're talking to an idiot and a crazy person. <laughs> now, you're well-known going back to the 70s and the... Equal Rights Amendment and everything as a as a left leaning person is it was it, well I
1: campaigned very hard for the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. I spent about ten years when I wasn't acting or writing. Yeah, I was uh, traveling in Oklahoma or Illinois or Florida trying to lobby the state representatives because I thought it was an issue that affected all of us. But that doesn't give you... In terms of... Uh, By the way, I don't know if nowadays people know what the Equal Rights Amendment (laughs) even was. It was a a short amendment to the Constitution that simply said that the rights of all U.S. citizens would be equal without regard to sex. Mm -hmm. That's,
0: oddly enough, not in the Constitution. Yeah, yeah. Well, so for you, though, I guess, being asked to play a guy who is... Not only specifically Arnie Vinnick, but just in any case, if somebody is presented to you who is the polar opposite of you, does that make it more or less appealing? It's fun. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, my God, you know, it's amazing. People actually said to me, was it hard to play a Republican? <laughs> Nobody ever said, was it hard to play an axe murderer? <laughs> what are they
0: thinking? Right, right. It's, people. A, it's a human being. Right, right, right. Well, you had another U.S. senator that you played in The Aviator for Martin Scorsese. Right. He was a real pilot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You can swear
0: on this podcast. You're welcome. I don't know about yours, but we welcome it. Uh, <laughs> this was the guy that basically was the nemesis of Howard Hughes. Right. And you did a, a, a wonderful job and ended up with your first Oscar nomination. So what was it like working with somebody who even you who's worked with so many great people. It must have been a little exciting to work with Martin Scorsese. Oh, it was great. What a wonderful chance
1: that was. He's a wonderful director. He's a terrific person. Totally positive. You know, after a take, he would come over and just say nothing but positive. That was great. I loved it. I loved the way you did that. That was so good. The way you did that with your hand, that thing, and the thing on your face. It was so nice. I really liked it. Maybe next time you try it a little bit more like this one.
0: That's By the great. time
1: he's finished, he walks away, you realize he hated the yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny. But he's great. Yeah. I, I really admire him. I got to work with really wonderful people. So. Well, there's only one other that I'm going to ask about before Marriage Story, because this one, no reason for you to remember this, but this would have been 2008. I was with the LA Times, but I had gone to Brandeis University as a student before that. And... A year after or whatever, after my graduation, I went back there to do a a series of screenings where we would bring interesting people to the campus. And in conjunction with a a great and underseen movie called Nothing But The Truth from Rod Lurie, we had you and Kate Beckinsale come to the campus and we had a, a fun evening and I want to highlight that movie because I don't think I believe there was some issue with the distributor going out of business or something. I know, right on opening day. On opening the day, the picture,
1: so- the picture should have done really well. You guys it was were a great. Very good picture. Yeah, and about an important subject. Yeah, he's a he's a terrific director. He's yeah. become a friend of mine. One of my grandsons just did a movie with him, based on Jake Tapper's yeah, book, the outpost. the outpost. Yeah, And and and. Uh, it was great to see them uh, work together yeah I really liked that Spielberg I worked with Spielberg too I had a wonderful time with him it was, it was wonderful to watch you know with, with the experience of directing a few movies myself mm-hmm. to watch how a, a director of such proportions like Spielberg or you mean, know, all these great directors remind me which was the Spielberg project Bridge of Spies oh of course yeah, yeah. it was great but I, I've worked with these all these great guys in Baumbach the same thing Noah Baumbach well yes and, we're done. and to see how they set up a shot to see how what the rhythm of the day's work is how many takes they do Noah Baumbach likes to do a lot of takes and I love that because you I it's like being on the stage and having a long run yeah I just get better every time I do it interesting Rod Lurie, who I did a couple of movies with. Mm-hmm likes to be economized on the number of takes he Mm -hmm. does he said to me before we started the first picture now i want you to be comfortable what do you like to do one take or two (laughs) that's like clint apparently What? yes clint easily does one or two takes yeah yeah and it's funny if you know that's the rhythm as soon as the camera turns it's opening night yeah so you're not you're not dogging it you're trying to make it
0: make it land so interesting you've become the face of something that I'm sure you never planned on this being the case, but it's, it's uh, I think, a, a really important thing that you've done. And that was sort of talking about Parkinson's. And you, I believe, from the chronology that I've read, diagnosed in 2015, spoke about it in public in 2018, and I think have shown that people can live very happy, productive lives with it. And I guess I just wonder if you can in case there's a listener who wasn't aware that this was something you're grappling with, what was your sign that it was uh, something that might be a, a little amiss? And then what made you decide to talk about it? Well, I I had a
1: symptom that's not usually recognized as an early symptom, which was that I was acting out my dreams. And I read an article about that in the New York Times by Jane Brody, who interviewed a couple of doctors who said that a high percentage of their patients who acted out their dreams turned out to have Parkinson's.
0: So while you were asleep, you were doing things? Yeah. For
1: instance, I'd have a dream. One in one dream, I was being attacked by somebody Mm -hmm. and I threw a sack of potatoes at this person attacking me. And in reality, I was throwing a pillow at my wife. Uh, So that's, that's what they mean by acting out your dreams. And uh, I went to see a a neurologist and I said I, I I think I may have Parkinson's and I, I'd like a brain scan to see if I got it because if I have it I want to start a written an exercise program or um, medications whatever whatever can hold off the worst of it because it can get really bad yeah but it doesn't get bad right away and you can hold off the progress for a long time hmm some people I mean, Michael Fox said to me you don't die from Parkinson's you die with it
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: so he said well he gave me a regular physical exam and said uh, I don't know why you want to scan you don't seem to have Parkinson's at all I don't see any symptoms he I said I, I I take the advice of these doctors I read about in the paper so I want to scan mm-hmm. and he called me back later and said Well, you really got it wow wow But I started a program of exercise. I research it all the time. If there's a a non-invasive thing I can do that might work, I I try it. I box. I march to Sousa music. (laughs) I juggle. I dance. I uh, swim. I play tennis. I'm more active than I used to be. And you're still... Acting a full schedule. Yeah, right? I may do my podcast. I act.
0: Yes. I'm on Ray Donovan and yes. I'm playing a part. I'm in Marriage Story. Yes. So, how'd you first hear about this? Let's just say, let's remind folks you're playing, or preview for folks, you're playing Bert Spitz, a decent, pleasant, perhaps a little in over his head divorce attorney representative. I've never done that before. <laughs> Decent, amazing. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's representing a, 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 the husband in a divorce hearing. The husband played by Adam Driver. The wife played by Scarlett Johansson. And they're brilliant, boy. And they, they are. are yeah. They good. They, yes. If they don't get nominated, I'll be surprised. I, I, me too. They're terrific. And as you say, written and directed by Noah Baumbach. How did it cross your radar? It came
1: to me from my agent. It was yeah. kind of a boring the answer. Usual, yeah. The usual,
0: and <laughs>
1: and, uh, and, and, it, and and I thought it was wonderful.
0: What What was it that particularly appealed to you?
1: Noah does something that I don't think has ever been done before, and it 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 takes a lot of skill and it takes nerve to do it. He wrote a story that chronicles a divorce, but it's a love story. Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask anybody after the last moment of the movie, isn't this a kind of a strange love story? They'd say yes, and, and people are touched by the last couple of moments. In a way, it's not the kind of love story where they fall in love, they meet cute, they fall in love, right. they have some hard times to overcome, and then it ends in marriage. Right. This is where it starts, where the marriage is falling apart. And it's falling apart partly because they don't communicate very well, which Mm. is an appealing subject to me. I was going to say. But one of the things they find out is that when you get a divorce, you have to communicate way better than you did during the marriage. (laughs) And the marriage ironically fell apart because you weren't communicating well. So it's, it's got all those layers to it. But it's amazing to me that he's been able to write a love story that is chronicling a divorce like that. I, I think that's really
0: surprising and skillful on his part. And balancing really heavy stuff with really funny stuff. Right, sometimes in the same scene. Yes, I think about your scene where you're t- basically telling a joke with the it appears to be trying to just run up the clock a little bit oh, on well, your... he's worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you also said that you kind of immediately knew who your guy was when you saw the, the set or the real place that would serve as his office. Yeah, I,
1: I, first of all, I, I rely on the script to show me who the guy is that I'm going to play. But I had a, I thought I had a real revelation. I walked into the set and I saw this kind of fake, uh, fake wooden walls, you know, and an old desk with cigarette burns in it. <laughs> and I thought, I think I see who this is. As soon as I sat down in the chair, I I knew I felt I knew who I, who the guy was in right. a way I wouldn't have known. Actors have different ways of knowing who the character is. It's an old idea that when you wear the character's shoes for the first time, you stand up and walk in his shoes. Yeah. You know, that you get something from the shoes. When I started MASH I thought, well, when I put those boots on, I'm going to know. This was after 10 days of rehearsal. I still didn't know who I really, I didn't quite believe I was him.
0: <laughs> well, I, to to follow up on that, I read something where you're, you know, somebody asked you, could you relate to him at all? And... You said not at first, and then there was something about having to grab a... I,
1: I, I went out the door while well, the camera's rolling for the first shot, and I still didn't know who I I didn't believe I was Hawkeye. And there was a nurse coming toward me, so I just threw my arm around her and gave her a hug. Hello. And I said, well, there, that's Hawkeye. I know it wasn't so hard.
0: Right, just a little uh, a little more aggressive than you might be. Oh, way more. <laughs> way more than anybody would be. Yeah, now. than anyone would be. Well, it's interesting that this is a story about a, a couple obviously growing apart, but you, how many years have you now been married to your wife? 62. Partner? In the spring, it'll be 63. Amazing. So based on your vast experience with a successful marriage, what went wrong with this couple, the Scarlet adam couple?
1: I, I think they could have done better in the beginning, but but then there wouldn't be a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned they did fine. They that it worked out. Yeah. yeah. But they could have been better at paying attention to what the other one needed. Yeah. And not pretending everything was okay. You some it. in some cases pretending knowing what they needed and not being able to say it.
0: I read that you have a certain number of times you need to make your wife laugh every day. Oh, I once made a uh,
1: a New Year's resolution that I would make her laugh Once a day. Once a day. And uh, around spring of that year, she said to me, you made a resolution to make me happy. I said, no, I didn't. It was to make you laugh. (laughs) The rest of it's here on your own.
0: Well, the last question is just that you've spoken about a day that changed your life. You were working on a, a science project, which is something that, or, you know, program promoting, focusing on science, which I know is a passion of yours. I think you were in Chile. Yeah, And it's sort of, if you can share what happened, I believe it, it gave you a, a sort of appreciation, newfound appreciation of everything since. Well, I,
1: I was in Chile doing the science show and I was 8,000 feet up on top of a mountain getting ready to interview astronomers in an observatory. And I got this terrible pain in my gut, which was because the blood supply had been choked off a about a yard of my intestine. It's the worst pain you can feel. So they took me to a hospital at the bottom of the mountain. There was a doctor there who was brilliant and diagnosed me right away. And I was going to die within a couple of hours. And uh, the way the story ended, I lived. Mm-hmm. But well, it was I, very, you, uh,
0: it, I think you also beat him to the diagnosis, or something right about the. Well, di- I knew
1: I knew the term for the operation he was going to do on me. So I, I because. I, because I had done that operation on Mac. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's, I guess you you feel that sort of uh, since then, every day is a, is a bonus. Every day is a bonus. And I've kept that feeling yeah.
1: a really long time. It was 16 years ago. Wow. And I don't think I've run out of being glad to wake up alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the great entertainment and for doing this and... And congrats on Marriage Story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun talking with you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at THR.com slash The Race. Finally, be sure to check out all of the other shows that are part of The Hollywood Reporter's podcast network. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sun's Hollywood Remixed, Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Josh Wigler's series regular, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for listening.